Chapter Three of Book Six of Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Six: The Sleepless Night. Chapter Three: The Inseparable. What had become of Jean Valjean? Immediately after having laughed, at Cosette's graceful command when no one was paying any heed to him, Jean Valjean had risen and had gained the antechamber unperceived. This was the very room which, eight months before, he had entered black with mud, with blood and powder, bringing back the grandson to the grandfather. The old wainscoting was garlanded with foliage and flowers. The musicians were seated on the sofa on which they had laid Marius down. Basque, in a black coat, knee-breeches, white stockings, and white gloves, was arranging roses round all of the dishes that were to be served. Jean Valjean pointed to his arm in its sling, charged Basque to explain his absence, and went away. The long windows of the dining-room opened on the street. Jean Valjean stood for several minutes, erect and motionless in the darkness, beneath those radiant windows. He listened. The confused sounds of the banquet reached his ear. He heard the loud, commanding tones of the grandfather, the violins, the clatter of the plates, the bursts of laughter, and through all that merry uproar he distinguished Cosette's sweet and joyous voice. He quitted the Rue des Filles du Cavert and returned to the Rue de l'Omarme. In order to return thither, he took the Rue Saint-Louis, the Rue Culture Saint-Catherine, and the Blanc Manteau. It was a little longer, but it was the road through which, for the last three months, he had become accustomed to pass every day on his way from the Rue de Lomarne to the Rue des Filles du Calvaire in order to avoid the obstructions and the mud in the Rue Vieille du Temple. This road, through which Cosette had passed, excluded for him all possibility of any other itinerary. Jean Valjean entered his lodgings. He lighted his candle and mounted the stairs. The apartment was empty. Even Toussaint was no longer there. Jean Valjean's step made more noise than usual in the chambers. All the cupboards stood open. He penetrated to Cosette's bedroom. There were no sheets on the bed. The pillow, covered with ticking, and without a case or lace, was laid on the blankets folded up on the foot of the mattress, whose covering was visible, on which no one was ever to sleep again. All the little feminine objects which Cosette was attached to had been carried away. Nothing remained except the heavy furniture, and the four walls. Toussaint's bed was despoiled in a like manner. One bed only was made up, and seemed to be waiting someone, and this was Jean Valjean's bed. Jean Valjean looked at the walls, closed some of the cupboard doors, and went and came from one room to another. Then he sought his own chamber once more, and set his candle on a table. He had disengaged his arm from the sling, and he used his right hand as though it did not hurt him. He approached his bed, and his eyes rested, was it by chance, was it intentionally, on the inseparable, of which Cosette had been jealous, on the little portmanteau which never left him. On his arrival in the Rue de l'Omarme, on the 4th of June, he had deposited it on a round table near the head of his bed. He went to this table with a sort of vivacity, took a key from his pocket, and opened the valise. From it he slowly drew forth the garments in which, ten years before, Cosette had quitted Montfermeil. 
first the little gown, then the black fichu, then the stout, coarse child's shoes, which Cosette might almost have worn still, so tiny were her feet, and the fustian bodice, which was very thick, then the knitted petticoat, next the apron with the pockets, then the woollen stockings. These stockings, which still preserved the graceful form of a tiny leg, were no longer than Jean Valjean's hand. All this was black of hue. It was he who had brought those garments to Montfermeil for her. As he removed them from the valise, he laid them on the bed. He fell to thinking. He called up memories. It was in winter, in a very cold month of December. She was shivering, half-naked, in rags. Her poor little feet were all red in their wooden shoes. He, Jean Valjean, had made her abandon those rags to clothe herself in these mourning habiliments. The mother must have felt pleased in her grave, to see her daughter wearing mourning for her, and, above all, to see that she was properly clothed, and that she was warm. He thought of that forest of Montfermeil. They had traversed it together, Cosette and he. He thought of what the weather had been, of the leafless trees, of the wood destitute of birds, of the sunless sky. It mattered not. It was charming. He arranged the tiny garments on the bed, the fichu next to the petticoat, the stockings beside the shoes, and he looked at them, one after the other. She was no taller than that. She had a big doll in her arms. She had put a louis d'or in the pocket of that apron. She had laughed. They walked hand in hand. She had no one in the world but him. Then his venerable white head fell forward on the bed. That stoical old heart broke. His face was engulfed, so to speak, in Cosette's garments, and if anyone had passed up the stairs at that moment, he would have heard frightful sobs. End of Book 6, Chapter 3 Read by Anka Chapter 4 of Book 6 of Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood Book 6, The Sleepless Night Chapter 4, The Immortal Liver The old and formidable struggle, of which we have already witnessed so many phases, began once more. Jacob struggled with the angel but one night. Alas, how many times have we beheld Jean Valjean seized bodily by his conscience, in the darkness and struggling desperately against it. Unheard of conflict. At certain moments the foot slips, at other moments the ground crumbles away underfoot. How many times had that conscience, mad for the good, clasped and overthrown him? How many times had the truth set her knee inexorably upon his breast? How many times, hurled to earth by the light, had he begged for mercy. How many times had that implacable spark lighted within him, and upon him by the bishop, dazzled him by force when he had wished to be blind? How many times had he risen to his feet in the combat, held fast to the rock, leaning against sophism, dragged in the dust, now getting the upper hand of his conscience, again overthrown by it? How many times, after an equivoque, after the specious and treacherous reasoning of egotism, had he heard his irritated conscience cry in his ear, A trip, you wretch! How many times had his refractory thoughts rattled convulsively in his throat, under the evidence of duty? Resistance to God, funereal sweats, what secret wounds which he alone felt bleed, what excoriations in his lamentable existence! 
How many times had he risen, bleeding, bruised, broken, enlightened, despair in his heart, serenity in his soul, and, vanquished, he had felt himself the conqueror, and after having dislocated, broken, and rent his conscience with red-hot pincers, it had said to him as it stood over him, formidable, luminous, and tranquil, Now go in peace. But on emerging from so melancholy a conflict, what a lugubrious peace, alas! Nevertheless, that night Jean Valjean felt that he was passing through his final combat. A heart-rending question presented itself. Predestinations are not all direct. They do not open out in a straight avenue before the predestined man. They have blind courts, impassable alleys, obscure turns, disturbing cross-roads offering the choice of many ways. Jean Valjean had halted at that moment at the most perilous of these cross-roads. He had come to the supreme crossing of good and evil. He had that gloomy intersection beneath his eyes. On this occasion once more, as had happened to him already in other sad vicissitudes, two roads opened out before him, the one tempting, the other alarming. Which was he to take? He was counselled to the one which alarmed him by that mysterious index finger which we all perceive whenever we fix our eyes on the darkness. Once more Jean Valjean had the choice between the terrible port and the smiling ambush. Is it then true? The soul may recover, but not fate. Frightful thing, an incurable destiny. This is the problem which presented itself to him. In what manner was Jean Valjean to behave in relation to the happiness of Cosette and Marius? It was he who had willed that happiness. It was he who had brought it about. He had himself buried it in his entrails, and at that moment when he reflected on it, he was able to enjoy the sort of satisfaction which an armourer would experience on recognising his factory mark on a knife, on withdrawing it, all smoking, from his own breast. Cosette had Marius, Marius possessed Cosette. They had everything, even riches, and this was his doing. But what was he, Jean Valjean, to do with this happiness, now that it existed, now that it was there? Should he force himself on this happiness? Should he treat it as belonging to him? No doubt, Cosette did belong to another. But should he, Jean Valjean, retain of Cosette all that he could retain? Should he remain the sort of father, half seen but respected, which he had hitherto been? Should he, without saying a word, bring his past to that future? Should he present himself there, as though he had a right? And should he seat himself, veiled, at that luminous fireside? Should he take those innocent hands into his tragic hands with a smile? Should he place upon the peaceful fender of the Gillenormand drawing-room those feet of his, which dragged behind them the disgraceful shadow of the law? Should he enter into participation in the fair fortunes of Cosette and Marius? Should he render the obscurity on his brow and the cloud upon theirs still more dense? Should he place his catastrophe as a third associate in their felicity? Should he continue to hold his peace? In a word, should he be the sinister mute of destiny beside these two happy beings? We must become habituated to fatality and to encounters with it, in order to have the daring to raise our eyes when certain questions appear to us in all their horrible nakedness. Good or evil stands behind this severe interrogation point. What are you going to do? demands the Sphinx. This habit of trial Jean Valjean possessed. He gazed intently at the Sphinx. He examined the pitiless problem under all its aspects. 
Cosette, that charming existence, was the raft of his shipwreck. What was he to do, to cling fast to it, or to let go his hold? If he clung to it, he should emerge from disaster. He should ascend again into the sunlight. He should let the bitter water drip from his garments and his hair. He was saved, he should live. And if he let go his hold? Then the abyss. Thus he took sad counsel with his thoughts. Or, to speak more correctly, he fought. He kicked furiously internally, now against his will, now against his conviction. Happily for Jean Valjean that he had been able to weep. That relieved him, possibly. But the beginning was savage. A tempest, more furious than the one which had formerly driven him to Arras, broke loose with him. The past surged up before him, facing the present. He compared them and sobbed. The silence of tears once opened, the despairing man writhed. He felt that he had been stopped short. Alas! In this fight to the death between our egotism and our duty, when we thus retreat step by step before our immutable ideal, bewildered, furious, exasperated at having to yield, disputing the ground, hoping for a possible flight, seeking an escape, what an abrupt and sinister resistance does the foot of the wall offer in our rear! To feel the sacred shadow which forms an obstacle. The invisible inexorable, what an obsession! Then one is never done with conscience. Make your choice, Brutus, make your choice, Cato. It is fathomless, since it is God. One flings into that well the labour of one's whole life. One flings in one's fortune. One flings in one's riches. One flings in one's success. One flings in one's liberty or fatherland. One flings in one's well-being. One flings in one's repose. One flings in one's joy. More, more, more. Empty the vase, tip the urn one must finish by flinging in one's heart. Somewhere in the fog of the ancient hells there is a ton like that. Is not one pardonable if one at last refuses? Can the inexhaustible have any right? Are not chains which are endless above human strength? Who would blame Sisyphus and Jean Valjean for saying, It is enough? The obedience of matter is limited by friction. Is there no limit to the obedience of the soul? If perpetual motion is impossible, can perpetual self-sacrifice be exacted? The first step is nothing, it is the last which is difficult. What was the Champmathieu affair in comparison with Cosette's marriage, and of that which it entailed? What is re-entrance into the galleys compared to entrance into the void? O oh, first step that must be descended, how sombre art thou! O oh, second step, how black art thou! How could he refrain from turning aside his head this time? Martyrdom is sublimination, corrosive sublimination. It is a torture which consecrates. One can consent to it for the first hour. One seats oneself on the throne of glowing iron. One places on one's head the crown of hot iron. One accepts the globe of red-hot iron. One takes the scepter of red-hot iron. But the mantle of flame still remains to be donned, and comes there not a moment when the miserable flesh revolts and when one abdicates from suffering at length jean valjean entered into the peace of exhaustion he weighed he reflected he considered the alternatives the mysterious balance of light and darkness should he impose his galleys on those two dazzling children or should he consummate his irremediable engulfment by himself on one side lay the sacrifice of cosette on the other that of himself at what solution should he arrive 
What decision did he come to? What resolution did he take? What was his own inward definitive response to the unbribable interrogatory of fatality? What door did he decide to open? Which side of his life did he resolve upon closing and condemning? Among all the unfathomable precipices which surrounded him, which was his choice? What extremity did he accept? To which of the gulfs did he nod his head? His dizzy reverie lasted all night long. He remained there until daylight, in the same attitude, bent double over that bed, prostrate beneath the enormity of fate, crushed, perchance, alas, with clenched fists, with arms outspread at right angles, like a man crucified who has been unnailed and flung face down on the earth. There he remained for twelve hours, the twelve hours of a long winter's night, ice cold, without once raising his head, and without uttering a word. He was as motionless as a corpse, while his thoughts wallowed on the earth and soared, now like the hydra, now like the eagle. Any one to behold him thus motionless would have pronounced him dead. All at once he shuddered convulsively, and his mouth, glued to Cosette's garments, kissed them. Then it could be seen that he was alive. Who could see, since Jean Valjean was alone and there was no one there? The one who is in the shadows. End of Book 6, Chapter 4 Read by Anka